Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started, I want to tell you about a new show you should also check out. If you have strong political opinions like I do, you've probably wound up debating issues with people you love. These days, political disagreements are especially fraught because they feel really personal. In a new show called I Love You But I Hate Your Politics, therapist Jeannie Safer helps couples and friends who care about each other but can't seem to see eye to eye on political issues. Find I Love You But I Hate Your Politics wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. And welcome back to Women Belong in the House. I am not the candidate of Black America, although I am Black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman, and I'm equally proud of that. I am the candidate of the people of America. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder of Wonder Media Network. There's a record number of women running for office this year. We're telling their stories. We're also digging into why there are fewer women in office and why often women don't want to run. We're bringing you stories of women who are on the trail and working hard ahead of November. This week, I caught up with many of them in the midst of their busy campaign schedules by phone, so I'm sorry for the less than optimal audio quality. That being said, we're talking about a group that has been a shining light of success the past couple of elections despite facing hurdles beyond the norm. We're looking at women of color, and specifically Black women, who are stepping up to run. You know, so many people say, oh, this is such a wave of women running, but I don't call it a wave. It is a movement. That's Ashanti Golar. She's the political director of Emerge America, an organization that recruits and trains Democratic women to run for office. She's also the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. She was kind enough to speak with me from the busy Emerge America offices. You might hear the voices of a few of her colleagues in the background working to support women on the campaign trail. Particularly for women of color, we're always looked to as voters. You know, oh, you want to engage the women of color to come vote for you. But the fact is, we shouldn't just be the voters. We should be the candidates. Our names should be on the ballot. Why are we constantly volunteering for everyone else? Why are we helping write their policy that benefits communities of color? We should write the policy and enact it ourselves when we're in elected office. And I knew this time would always come. I'm glad it's come much sooner, you know, than I thought that it would. But this is amazing. Here's Glinda Carr. Glinda's the co-founder of Higher Heights, an organization founded to harness the power of Black women to elect Black women, to influence elections, and to advance progressive politics. Well, I will say that the uh, story that hasn't been covered is that although the 23 million Black women in this country are still underrepresented and underserved, 
over the last couple of election cycles, we have been inching along. More of us are stepping off the sidelines to run for office. You know, looking at the data, if more Black women actually run, the more of them will win. For example, in 2016, obviously the, the headline was that we anticipated that a woman running at the top of the ticket would be the first woman president. That didn't happen. But what you will see in down-ballot races in 2016 is that we elected the largest number of women of color to serve in Congress, including the largest number of Black women, including sending the second Black woman to ever serve in the U.S. Senate. In 2016, we elected the largest number of Black women to serve in state legislatures across this country, including the first Black woman to serve in the Kentucky legislature in 20 years. This election is historic. People from all different backgrounds are stepping up to run. Here's Michael Latner with more. He's an associate professor in the political science department at California Polytechnic State University. We are seeing not just more women running, but we're seeing a more diverse set of candidates running than we've probably ever seen before. And so it is very hard to predict how that's going to play out. But in part, it reflects the changing political reality. One of the things I think we're seeing is a real cultural clash between what the president of the United States stands for in terms of his values and what he is advocating and, frankly, his history. And we're seeing a a response to that. So the intersection of of race and gender and class, we are seeing a response, both an inspired and an angry response, to who's going to lead our country and how we're going to react to what happened in 2016. Let's look back on where we're coming from. 50 years ago, in 1968, Shirley Chisholm was the first Black woman elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Here's Glenda Carr again. The barriers are still the same. What we have now is a different political environment and obviously a different way we communicate. But I think her legacy is one that uh, inspires. You know, she once said that you can't make progress whimpering and complaining on the sidelines. You make progress by implementing ideas. That is what we've seen for the many Black women who have decided to step off the sidelines. They have been at the forefront of being truth tellers and in the spirit of Shirley Chisholm's leadership have provided forward-thinking ideas and have stood in the gap to elevate the voices of their constituency, which oftentimes feel disenfranchised in our democracy. Claire Bresnahan English is the former executive director of She Should Run, a nonpartisan organization that aims to expand the talent pool of women running for office in the U.S. Now Claire's the project director for a strategy firm called Talk to Jess, which advises global brands on representation and inclusion. I think it's important for us to just step back into historical context, right? We're coming up on 2020 as the 100th anniversary of women getting the right to vote. And I think that's a clear message of how there's only been 100 years of women being able to legally vote, but that's even just only including white women, right? There were many decades where women of color did not have the same access to voting. And so when that was even restricted for decades upon decades upon decades, you know, it can start to make sense of why if we didn't even have access to vote, that we didn't get engaged at the highest level in terms of running and serving an elected office. And so there was just this historical barrier where women were, particularly women of color, were actively disinvited and unwelcomed in the political process. Underrepresentation remains a major problem. Black women make up 7.3 percent of the U.S. population, but less than 5 percent of elected office holders to state executive offices, Congress, and state legislatures. Black women comprise 4.1% of members of the House of Representatives. 
Here's Glenda Carr again. So we currently have 21 Black women serving in the 115th Congress, 19 Black women that are voting members of Congress, two Black women that serve as non-voting delegates would be the District of Columbia and the Virgin Islands, and then one Black woman that serves in the U.S. Senate. Black women represent 3.6% of members of Congress, and since Shirley Chisholm's historic run, there have been 38 Black women who have served in Congress from 16 states. I think it's really important to reiterate that every woman has her own story and every political race is different. We're looking at how different facets of identity form candidates' political opinions and impact their ability to run successful campaigns. Looking at scholarship around these kinds of issues means sometimes grouping people according to different identities. But as we know, people are much more than a box they have to check. Each of us has many different components that make up who we are. I hope we can use this podcast series as a starting point for dialogue. It's incredibly exciting that the women who are running this election come from diverse backgrounds. More than ever before, these women aren't forcing themselves to fit into certain boxes to step up and take action. Still, women of color often face obstacles beyond those faced by white women running for office. They're less likely to be encouraged to run, and they're actually more likely to be discouraged from stepping up. They face uphill battles when it comes to being taken seriously by party establishments, particularly if a minority candidate is running in a district that's mostly white. Ashanti Golar spoke with me about these hurdles. It is definitely, you know, the bad double whammy, you know, as I like to call it, because people are already seeing you as a woman, but then they're also seeing you as a woman of color, which means that they have a lot of biases. They have a lot of preconceived notions, and that hurts women of color a lot. You have to be three, four times as good as everyone else just to get taken seriously. And when you do win your primary, you do win your election, you still have to face extra scrutinization when you're in elected office. Talking to women of color, they will say all the time, Well, someone told me that I need to talk differently. I need to wear my hair differently. You know, the way I dress isn't appropriate. What I hear women tell us all the time is the small things that everyone has in their life, people will amplify them to make a woman of color not credible. Parking tickets. Everyone has parking tickets. But for a woman of color, that means that she's irresponsible. It's also a lot harder to raise money, you know, particularly for women of color, because they're not considered to be viable candidates. And I hate that word, but people look at them, they're like, well, will the voters vote for them? Well, will donors give them money? How would they do on a debate stage? They get all of that extra scrutiny. And then people also just think that they won't be able to relate, that they're not what the district needs. And I tell our women, particularly our women of color, if they listened every time, you know, some jerk told them, oh, no, you shouldn't run for office. It's not your time. Wait your turn. We would never have any women or women of color in office. So, you know, don't ask permission. Don't wait your turn. Just run. Here's Glenda Carr again. There's been a steady tick for Black women. 
but we still face obstacles from not only not being encouraged to run for office, in some instances being discouraged from running for office. Black women candidates still have to face barriers around fundraising uh, and perceptions about viability as a candidate. And as you know, oftentimes when people create a criteria around viability, that is connect to being able to raise money early. Um, but what you've seen in this election cycle is we've had a plate of Black women running in some instances not as the party designated candidate or supportive candidate and still winning with less resources. Obviously, I think, you know, in some instances, media cover women from a physical perspective, regardless of race or ethnicity, but in particular, as it relates to perceptions of Black women from the way we wear our hair or perception of our interest in running for office and our ambition being masked as talking about, you know, angry Black women. So we spend a lot of time ensuring that we are creating the environment for Black women to run, win, and lead, and that is ensuring that we are pushing the narrative in a positive way and, and making sure that we are calling out biased representation of Black women in the media and in social media. Despite the biases that can make it harder for women, and specifically women of color, to run, candidates to selection are sharing their identities in new and perhaps more authentic ways. The thing that I love is that women are embracing being women. You have ads where women are breastfeeding. You have women openly talking about their experiences with sexual assault and domestic violence. They are talking about how being a woman will make them different from their opponents. And you also have people who are willing to vote for people that don't look like them. And this is something I argue about a lot now, because particularly when it comes to people of color, people want to say people of color can only represent people of color. They have to run in districts of color. And that is just absolutely not true. People of color have the exact same experience, knowledge, know-how to run for office, and they can represent people who don't look like them. Because at the end of the day, you can find common ground with people. That brings us to our candidate of the week. The old school mindset might say that her age, her sex, and the color of her skin means she doesn't fit the part of a politician, particularly in her majority white district. But she beat six older white men in the Democratic primary, and she's outraised her Republican opponent the past two consecutive quarters. I'm Lauren Underwood. I'm a 31-year-old nurse from Naperville, Illinois, running for Congress in the Illinois 14th District. Lauren was born in 1986, 70 years after the first woman, Jeanette Rankin, was elected to Congress, and 66 years after women won the right to vote. I grew up in a town called Naperville, 45 minutes west of the city of Chicago, and it's like a classic suburb. <laughs> My family moved here when I was three years old. Back then, it was much more of like a farming community that was transitioning to a suburb, not like a booming super suburb that it is today. And, you know, it was built around young families. My sister and I were enrolled in T-ball and the YMCA basketball league, and we would go to the country buffet with my mom for lunch and things like that. But it was just fun and nice. Lauren was always politically aware, even if she didn't always know she wanted to go into politics as a career. Uh, my parents have always been politically aware, meaning we always watched the news together and we'd get the paper and talk to us about it. I remember when I was in first grade, it was the 92 election, 
and we had like a mock election in class. And I remember being the only person in my class that thought that Bill Clinton was going to win. And that was like the first memory I have of politics in that everybody else came from a family that had a different perspective. And obviously, Bill Clinton won that election. But I just remember being so surprised that everybody else's family didn't think that that was going to be the outcome. You know, I never necessarily growing up thought I was going to do this. If Beyonce existed when I was in elementary school, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a singer like Whitney Houston, but dance. (laughs) And then I got diagnosed with this heart condition the summer after third grade during a swim lesson. My heart started racing and ended up getting diagnosed and, you know, would go and visit a cardiologist quarterly. I really got inspired by the care that I received from that medical team. And over time, I learned about public health and uh, decided that that was really where I would be able to have an impact. I was really attracted to the idea of helping communities and tens of thousands of people to have healthier lives. That was something that I thought was amazing. And thought that nursing would be a nice entry point into that career. At the same time in high school, I was appointed by our mayor to a local commission. He decided to let high school students get these appointments. And so I was put on the Fair Housing Commission in my town. And all of a sudden at 16, could investigate allegations of discrimination from landlords and make recommendations to city council about ways to improve our community to make it more inclusive and really live up to the standards which we otherwise hold ourselves to. And I love the experience. And then when I got to college, second semester freshman year at 8 a.m. on a Monday morning, I had this class, Policy and Politics and Nursing. It was the first time they taught the class, and it ended up using my two interests. And I learned about this field called health policy and knew that that's where I wanted to spend my career. In college, Lauren interned for Senator Barack Obama and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. When she graduated, she got a master's degree in public health and a master's degree in nursing from Johns Hopkins University. As a graduate student, Lauren worked as a nurse, and she interned with the District of Columbia Department of Health. When Lauren finished school, she joined the federal government. She started off as a career employee, not a political appointee. She was working to implement private insurance reform under the Affordable Care Act. She later joined the Obama administration as a senior advisor at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where she worked on public health emergencies and disasters. I was really delighted, thrilled. It was my dream job to be able to do that work, and I I did it as a career fed for four and a half years and then joined the Obama administration and worked in public health emergencies and disasters. So we did Ebola, Zika, the water crisis in Flint. We responded to natural disasters like wildfires and hurricanes and then worked on bioterrorism. So it was really exciting. There's a lot happening. All of that work was happening within an administration that valued universal health care as one of its crowning achievements. Lauren's not the only person who worked in the former administration and then decided to run. There are actually dozens of Obama administration alumni who are running for all different levels of office, according to the Obama Alumni Association. We know that women tend to decide to run based on the desire to attack an issue. As a nurse and as someone who had worked to create universal health care under President Obama, it makes sense that health care is what drove Lauren's decision. I was doing this work. We were working on specifically the Flint water crisis throughout 2016. And so when the election happened, I thought that we were going to have a chance to hand off our work on Flint and hand off our work on health reform to a team that cared and wanted to continue forward that progress. 
Instead, we got the Trump team who made it immediately clear that they wanted to take away health care coverage from the American people. And that's not why I became a nurse or did any of this work. And so I knew I could not stay in government and help them do that. And so I decided to return home to Illinois. And I got a job working for a Medicaid managed care company in Chicago. And then I found myself at my representative's one and only public event of 2017. And it was a moderated question and answer session hosted by our local chapter of the League of Women Voters. And that night he made a promise. He said he was only going to support a version of Obamacare repeal to let people with pre-existing conditions keep their health care coverage. And as a nurse, that kind of promise was really important to me because I'd taken care of patients who rely on their coverage in order to afford medications and any procedures that they may need to manage their chronic illness. And then I shared that I worked to implement the Affordable Care Act, right? So I've read the law. I know that it works. So we can fix it doesn't work. We don't have to throw the whole thing away. And like so many Americans, I have a pre-existing condition myself. It's a heart condition, and it's well-controlled, but it's one of these diagnoses where I wouldn't be able to get coverage under the repeal scenario. So when Randy Holgren made that promise, I believed him because it was personal. And then he went and voted for the American Health Care Act. And that one made it cost-prohibitive for people like me to be able to get insurance coverage. And I got really upset. Because I believe that representatives should be transparent and honest about their votes. They should be accessible to the community and ultimately know that they are accountable to us, the voters. And he didn't seem to recognize that. And so I decided, you know what, it's on, I'm running. And I launched the campaign in August 2017, ended up running in a Democratic primary against six guys. I got 57% of the vote. And now we're challenging Holgren directly and giving him a run for his money. Lauren expected that another powerful woman would step up and run in her community. It wasn't until she looked around and realized no one else was taking the bait that she decided she was going to have to do it herself. So it was so interesting to me when I was deciding to run, I was so surprised that there were no women that had stepped forward in my community to launch a campaign, you know, because women in the 14th district have been running things forever. Every PTA, every neighborhood association, every like nonprofit group and church group, right? We have like these dynamic, strong, super capable women all across our district. And this was like three months after the Women's March that this whole thing happened. And I was like, surely someone else sees what I'm seeing right now and that somebody's going to step up and run against my now opponent. And, you know, I made some calls. I was like, are you going to run? You should run. You know, talking to these women, you should run. I'll help you. And what I heard was now is not a good time, but my family needs me, these different reasons. And so ultimately I decided that I felt really strongly about it. I knew I had something to offer and so decided to run myself. And then I think that that kind of story has been echoed by so many of the women who are candidates for Congress around the country. I call them like my girlfriends around the country because we've gotten to know each other. I'm like huge fans of so many of these women and honestly can't wait to serve with them because I know that we're going to be able to have such a significant impact and that will help so many families, not just in Northern Illinois, but really across our country. So this is a story about women stepping up to lead and helping each other in the process. A more diverse pool of candidates brings new perspectives to the table where decisions are being made. It also gives voice to people who may not have felt they previously had a way to speak up. This is recognizing a need in our communities and stepping forward to serve. What I think we've seen over the course of this cycle, certainly, is that, yes, 
we're able to run very competitive campaigns and build coalitions across demographic groups and really bring in voters who had long felt abandoned or that they didn't have a place in government or that all the politicians had long ignored their stories and their concerns. I think you're seeing a lot of success as a result. And I believe that anytime we have a government that reflects the diversity of perspectives and experiences of the people with which they serve, then they will be more impactful. It changes the agenda. It changes the urgency with which people work because they're of the community and reflect the community. Lauren doesn't fit the stereotype of what a politician in this country is supposed to be. That means she's able to understand issues that have been ignored or glossed over by many of those currently in office. I'm a 31-year-old Black woman running in a half-suburban, half-rural district. So young woman of color. Typically, you wouldn't see even a person with any one of those running in our community. In the past, it's not been the case. I am just so thrilled to be able to talk about these issues that, you know, my neighbors and my colleagues have been raising for so long. Things like paid family leave and equal pay and affordable child care, three nonpartisan issues that if the Congress had the courage, if Paul Ryan had the courage to call a vote in the House tomorrow, they would pass. They would pass because it's not controversial. And it would have the benefit of helping so many families in our country. But guess what? Our leaders, one, don't have the courage, and two, they don't have a clue of how much it would help. And so you see these things not even on the agenda. They can't even get a vote call. The bills have been written. They just can't be considered. And that says to me that our system is broken. We need to change the face of leadership in order for our government to begin working for families once again. Not only is Lauren a woman of color, She's also a millennial. That makes her much younger than most politicians. Her age presents both challenges and opportunities. She says there are distinctive hurdles preventing most young people from running. I think about my age, right? I'm a millennial. Let's be real. The average millennial can't run for Congress because the average person in our generation has so much student loan debt that they can't afford to not work for a year or a year and a half in order to do something like this. Like the barrier to entry is so significant based on some really messed up policies. This is a problem that we know our generation faces. Ashanti Golar says she's a big fan of millennial candidates. Millennial women. I, I love them. I love them. I love them. The reason why I love them so much is they're not waiting for anyone to ask them to run for office. They are just doing it. They see an opportunity in their communities and they are going for it. And I feel that a lot of the policy changes that we want to see in this country, they're going to be the generation to get it done. Here's Lauren again. And so because of my identity where all my friends <laughs> have struggled with this issue, we find ourselves now in a position to speak about education and not just K-12 and not just higher ed in terms of standards, but really in terms of what happens after you graduate and what is the value of that degree and can you get a job, right? And what does growth look like, not for a workforce that is only in middle management and higher middle age or late career stage, but what does the economy look like 
for a millennial worker, right? And we're able to have these conversations across the district. And I think it's a real advantage because so many of the issues that we're talking about in this election, healthcare, climate change, boosting our local economy, right? Strengthening our public schools. These are legacy issues where we are at a tipping point. And the investments that we make, the changes that we make, the reforms that we implement impact us for years to come and our kids for their lives. And so it just feels really consequential. And I think that I'm uniquely positioned to speak to so many of these issues. Lauren has been endorsed by Higher Heights. I asked Linda Carr to tell me more about what she finds so exciting about Lauren's candidacy. She's exactly what I think our parents want, which is you go out, you go to school, you volunteer, you excel in your your field, and we aspire that we're engaged in our community. So here is a a woman who went back home because she thought she could make a difference in her home, home state, in her hometown. So it's very exciting. I also think for Higher Heights, it's exciting because it shows that Black women can lead, meaning they can lead a diverse constituency. And in her case, not even a diverse constituency. You know, she's running for a district that is dominantly white. She ran in a primary with the other challengers were all white men, and she overwhelmingly won, which shows that leadership transcends race and gender. So if you are, you know, the person for the moment who is prepared, able, and interested in serving with a message that translates that Black women across this country should be aspiring to run for office regardless of what the makeup of this district looks like. Let's get back to Lauren. Illinois 14th District is in northern Illinois outside of Chicago. So we go from the Wisconsin border in both McHenry County and Lake County. So if you know where Six Flags Great America is, if you're at Six Flags, you're in the 14th. We go out west to northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois. That's our western border. So we don't actually have campus in our district, but a lot of students and faculty live in our district and are affiliated with university. And then south to a community called Shorewood, which is near Joliet, which is a pretty industrious city outside of Chicago. And so the district has sort of this dual identity, right? Like in every community, you're going to see the corn stalks. You're going to see the gorgeous soybeans in the ground, right? You're going to see the grain towers and a big John Deere, you know, farm equipment, like rolling down the street, right? You'll see that. And then you also see the modern strip mall and, you know, a massage and be in every strip mall. But it's big. It's seven counties. It's a community where the average income is $105,000 a year. Most folks have gone to college. It's a district that's 80% white. It's 2.9% black. About 10% Latino. And the rest is Asian. Traditionally pretty conservative. It's a district that Trump got 49% and Hillary Clinton got 45%. And with that 45% of the vote, she outperformed Barack Obama in 2012, but Obama won the district in 2008. So it's a classic swing community. However, my opponent, this is his fourth term, Randy Holtman, is first elected to Congress in that Tea Party way in 2010. And he's held firm to not just the ideology, but the label. He's never had a primary calendar. And the Democrats who run against him have been like really well-intentioned but not able to be financially competitive. And so our 2016 nominee only raised $22,000 in his whole campaign. What that means is not able to run a race against a vulnerable incumbent, not on a really competitive basis. This year, for the first time, right, we're able to travel all across the district, these seven counties that sometimes could be more different and talk about the issues that are top of mind for families in our community. 
One of the biggest challenges that Lauren, and really all candidates, must face is fundraising. Raising money can be an even bigger challenge for women of color. Black women are from less moneyed networks on average, and they have to fight against bias based on race in addition to gender. Fundraising was additionally hard for Lauren because there'd been a dearth of serious Democratic candidates in the district. That means there were fewer donors who were already primed to give. It is a trip, okay? So when I first decided to run, the first question everybody asked is, can you raise money? Can you raise $100,000 out the gate, right? And I'm like, sure. Yeah, like, I didn't even really know how to conceptualize that. In my community, this is a district that hadn't had a competitive congressional race in 10 years, which means we didn't have a built-in donor base, right? So all of our local donors, for many of them, it's been their first time contributing to a political campaign ever, ever. So we are really recruiting and cultivating donors locally, building up a solid base of support and have found success over time. So did I hit every single goal um, when I first started running? No, but what happened was I had more cash on hand. And then by the time we got to 2018, I had out fundraised all of my Democratic opponents combined. Right before a primary election, I had outraised all of my Democratic opponents and my Republican opponent combined. And since I've been in the general, I've outraised my Republican opponent every quarter. And so what that has meant is now we truly are financially competitive in this race. And what I've learned since running is that there is only one metric. Because early in primaries, there's not a lot of polling that happens. But you have to report your fundraising numbers every quarter. So that is a quantitative metric that can be used to compare candidates. We've gotten contributions from people in all 50 states, right? It is, it's, I'm so grateful to know that people have our back, right? They see what we're doing and they're truly supportive because we know that elections in our country are not free. The television ads, the mailers, the office space, the stickers, the yard signs, the t-shirts, all these things have a real financial cost, and yet we're not there yet. I have significant goals yet to come. Here's Glinda Carr again. Ultimately, I think everyone agreed from the boardroom to elected office that when you have diverse decision-making tables, they actually make better decisions. So it is important that we ensure that that diversity is diversity around race, ethnicity, gender, but also, again, just background ideology. In this politically polarizing time, people are looking for leadership that is willing to challenge where we are in this country so that we can move this country to higher heights. Black women are not a political monolith. Black women are overwhelmingly Democrat, but we have very active Republican Black women in this country and Black women that identify themselves as independents. What we want to ensure is that all Black women believe that they have a voice in this democracy and that they have a return on their voting investment. That if we continue to not only organize ourselves to the polls, but also organize our communities to the polls. Going back to kind of my mother's story about her always making sure she called my brothers and I, that when you fire up a black woman, she doesn't go to the polls alone. She brings her house, her block, her church, and her sorority. And as we do that, we want to ensure that as we are voting candidates into office, that we want to ensure that our issues are being addressed. So it is important that we see ourselves in a democracy, but most importantly, that Black women, including myself, we want economically stable, safe, and healthy communities, and that we want to hold our elected officials accountable to ensure that they're delivering that to our families, our communities, and our nation. But we also see ourselves in that.
For different communities to make sure that they're heard, they need to have representation in the rooms where decisions are being made. As Shirley Chisholm once said, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Neera Tandon says she's seen that throughout her career in Washington. She's the president of the Center for American Progress, a progressive think tank. Every person brings a kind of wide variety of experiences. I'm a short Indian woman of color, and I think every kind of person brings a unique set of attributes. You know, what I think is really interesting is that I think there's also a greater appreciation today just in having people in leadership to have those wide experiences. I'm obviously an immigrant and a woman, but I also think my experience with poverty has deeply shaped my political orientation and my thinking about the world. And I think what's important is to think of leadership from a wide variety of perspectives. So, you know, I'm excited about the number of women of color who are running. And there are people running today who are the first person in their families to go to college. And I think what is exciting about this time is that we are seeing a broad array of different kinds of experiences that can help make people much better leaders. I have a lot of different experiences that shape my thinking about the world, and I think that's really helpful. One thing I've really learned in Washington is that who makes the decision, who's sitting around the table making the decision, really shapes the policy, and that's why it's so critical to have a wide variety of experiences. As a country, we have an opportunity to make our government and our policies better by listening to and incorporating a broader array of voices and perspectives. People, particularly women, are stepping up and running at all levels of office. Now it's in our hands as voters. We have the power and the right to choose what comes next. Here's Ashanti Golar. We have to realize that both political parties, we can't go to the default of like the straight white man, particularly the straight white man who can fund his own campaign. We have to do more at building the bench too, because we just focus a lot on Congress. But at the end of the day, the people who sit in Congress, they started off at the state and local level. If you look at prosecutors right now, 90% of prosecutors in this country are white men. And we wonder why our criminal justice system is the way that it is. But the fact is you can't change the criminal justice system without changing the faces of criminal justice reform, which means you have to have more women, particularly women of color, in those roles. So overall, I think in general, the political parties, they can do a lot better with realizing women aren't just voters. We deserve our seat at the table, too. As many of the people in this episode said, The diversity needed in Congress is about more than skin color. Our government would also benefit from a multiplicity of experiences and backgrounds. Next week, we're going to bring you a candidate who embodies that notion. Her life story goes from growing up in a trailer park to becoming a Fortune 500 executive. Okay, Uh, this is Angie Craig. I'm running in Minnesota's 2nd Congressional District, and I am 46 years old. More on that coming to you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women Belong in the House. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends. And if you didn't, let me know. Let's start a conversation. This movement is all about reaching out to the other, increasing empathy for opposing viewpoints, and sharing in the quest for justice and progress. You can find me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan. 
follow us on Instagram at WMN.media or email me at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. Talk to you next week.